Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Nathan Resnick, who is the founder of Sourceify. So Nathan, I'll let you kick, it, kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Sourceify and your background? Yeah, totally. I mean, brief background, I actually started in China when I was 15 years old as a foreign exchange student. So I lived with a host family, didn't speak English, attended a local school there, and just became so fascinated by how products were made. And so that year I started importing products myself and selling them on eBay and Amazon. Um, by the time I was 19, I had done over $600,000 online, and I thought I had you know, made it, of course, as a 19-year-old, as a and soon realized that to have longevity in e-commerce, I needed to have my own brand. So I launched a watch brand called Yes Man Watches. I had a sunglasses brand. Um, I really focused in like the fashion accessory category, but as my own brands grew, people always asked me, how do you manufacture products efficiently in China? And so I started Sourceify in 2017 to really solve that problem. Um, We've since expanded to four other offices, China, Vietnam, India, and Pakistan. And so we have a B2B supply chain software used by a lot of e-commerce brands, both Shopify and Amazon, and, you know, four offices, sourcing offices, where we go in, audit factories, manage production, handle quality control, and then often handle the freight as well. So our goal with any customer is to save them money in their supply chain. And, you know, for me, I just love e-commerce. I've been doing it for a real long time and uh you know really excited to be here today and talk about it yeah amazing so would love to get a little bit of context about maybe how that whole process works because you obviously were able to figure it out by launching your own brands in a couple similar but adjacent spaces and realizing that there's probably a similar process that goes on for um launching a brand right so yeah for people who are maybe thinking about not only like launching a brand from the ground up but also who maybe have a brand and are looking to ex- expand into different product SKUs. Um, you know, why don't you just give us the quick rundown or 101 on like what goes into building, sourcing, QCing a a product before you can actually sell it online on Shopify? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, bringing a product to life, any product, you know, is just so in-depth and there's so many nuances to it, right? Like even this hat, there's so many different uh, materials that go into a simple hat like this. You know, a lot of people come to us and they say, hey, we want to produce, you know, a t-shirt, right? But there's so many cuts and trims and fabrics that go into a shirt that you really have to dial in exactly what you want. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for brands looking to expand their product line is how do you actually get your specs dialed? You know, that can be either through a CAD or a tech pack. Um, And then at the end of the day, it's a matter of finding the right factory for you. So most brands, when they're starting out, they typically go on Alibaba, Global Sources, which is a great starting point. But as you scale up, a lot of those factories that you start with might not be the best fit as you grow past, you know, five, 10, $50 million a year in revenue. And so really where Sourceify comes in is to help those brands that have reached that, you know, $5 million plus mark that are now looking to save money in their supply chain. We go in and, you know, really do a cost analysis 
on what factory is best suited to work with them, right? Because, you know, if you're either making up a small portion of a company's, of a factory's uh, production line or taking up a majority, those could be good and bad scenarios, right? And so most people look to change factories either because, you know, they don't think the cost they're getting is right, the lead time is messed up, or the quality has a lot of quality fade, right? And so for us, those are the three main pillars that we look at. You know, price obviously is always top of mind, but if quality and lead times aren't there, then, you know, it's a big problem as well. And so when it comes to actually going into a factory, you know, there's so many metrics that we look at, like from an audit standpoint, you know, we look at the financials, we look at, you know, typical ISO or uh, BC, BSCI, you know, certificates that they have. But to be honest, I think a lot of those ISO type of certificates are just BS because a factory, and I've seen it firsthand, a factory will go in and make their factory look all nice for an auditor to come in. And then, you know, the next week you go and it looks completely different, right? And so I think always having a pulse in your factory is so important, especially when supply chain is, you know, the backbone of any e-commerce business. And what is that? Because you were on the ground, like you said, you were in China and you kind of were boots on the ground getting a feel for what this stuff looks like i know that you know maybe back in the day some of the first brands that started they're probably founders who would go overseas find a factory partner manufacturer and like really do it like that but like today you know everyone and their mom's launching a brand and a lot of times they're not doing that all this stuff is remote and virtual so why don't you walk us through a little bit about like what's the whole process like these days of someone who might be um, you know, launching a brand today, like what's their diligence process? Are they going right. over to Asia to find a factory? Are they finding them online? Like what resources <laughs> do they have to figure out? Who yeah. I mean, you know, I used to be in Asia four to eight times a year. Right. And with COVID, I haven't been back since. I mean, it's not that I'm, you know, uh, scared of COVID. It's just the lockdowns that they've had. And now COVID, now that they've lifted the zero COVID policy there, it's, you know, spreading like wildfire there. So you gotta, gotta be mindful of that. But you know, at the end of the day, if you're a startup just looking to get started in e-commerce, your best bet is honestly Alibaba or Global Sources. What you need to realize, though, is when you search for, let's say, a you know shoe or backpack manufacturer or whatever, you know, candles, whatever it may be, you know, Alibaba as a marketplace is pay to play. So all those suppliers that you're seeing are paying the list for the to, to rank for the that keyword that you're searching for. So if you're searching for, you know, candles, the factory that's number one or two or three or whatever it may be they're paying to be in that position. They're paying Alibaba to be in that position, similar to how brands rank on Amazon, right? When you search for candles to buy candles on Amazon. And so that's what you need to realize right off the bat, because just because a factory is the number one result on Alibaba doesn't mean they're the best factory for you. So um, right off the bat, just know that. And then I would dive into the response time of the factory rep that you're talking to. You know, most of your communication is going to be done through WeChat. So if you don't have WeChat, definitely download it right now. And then it's a matter of understanding that factory capacity, what products they've produced in the past, what brands they've worked with in the past. Um, and you can verify that by, you know, what I call kind of like a paper trick basically is like you tell your sales rep to write like their name and the date on a piece of paper and like have them go around the factory taking a video of that piece of paper or photos of that piece of paper with their production line to see like what's actually going on in that factory. Um, and you can get like a real feel and sense for that factory without actually being there then. Um, and all sales reps that work with like cool brands, they always, like if they actually have worked with those cool brands, they'll have photos of those products because they're excited and really um, just thrilled that they've been able to work with those brands, right? And so 
at the end of the day, it's not bad if a factory is producing a similar product to you. You know, obviously, um, eventually you're going to have to grow out of that factory and work with your own factory to have a competitive edge in your supply chain. But when you're starting out, it's not a bad thing if that factory is producing, you know, a competitive product to yours because, you know, that means they have the expertise. That means they, you know, might already have some scale in terms of volume with that exact type of product. Um, and then it's a matter of, you know, making sure you communicate your specs extremely well, right? There's so many nuances with specs and you really need to detail every single component, right? And so that's why I think all the CAD and tech pack files are so important because, you know, if you're just telling your factory, yeah, I want, you know, a hoodie that has drawstrings like this, but I want it looped like this and you don't have the exact specs detailed in a tech pack, then, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to mess it up. And it just means you're going to have to go back through the sampling process, which for, you know, most products is a, you know, four week process, right? So if you want to produce samples fast and, you know, get what's called golden samples the first time around, really try to have your specs dialed in. Um, and then it's a matter of placing a test production run, you know, depending on their MOQs, depending on the price, you know, probably be anywhere from like five to $25,000 or so, sometimes more if it's a, you know, custom mold and a much more expensive product. But, you know, that's the ballpark I think you're going to look to spend when you're just starting out uh, to get, you know, your first batch of inventory. And then it's a matter of always doing a third-party inspection. So your payment terms are typically going to be like 30% down, 70% before shipment. Before you pay that 70%, go to, you know, Factored Quality or Chima or there's so many third-party inspection companies out there and get a third-party inspection. It's going to cost you like two to $400. And it's kind of like your insurance to make sure that like what you're receiving from that shipment is actually uh, what you're expecting to receive, right? Because literally the worst case scenario is when you receive product and it's, you know, not what you expected because now you have product at your warehouse, which is when you're starting typically just your house and you've got a bunch of product that um, is messed up and that is a horrible position to be in. So get third-party inspections done. Even at the scale of Sourceify, we always do them um, because it's just, you know, why not? It's insurance for, for your product. Got it. And then how do you think about uh, like also finding the right factory and the right partner for whatever product you're manufacturing, right? Like obviously you can go and start looking for, oh, you know, brands or factories that have made similar products for similar brands. But like when you're really thinking about it, what are some of those other factors that you might want to be taking into consideration that might be maybe aren't so obvious? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think one thing you need to realize is that a lot of factories that produce the same products are like in the same city, right? Like all the watch factories are in this one area of Shenzhen. And that's because, you know, there was one watch factory and then the GM wanted to start their own factory and just kind of this cycle, you know, that's how, how these factories typically work. So you're going to find that certain hubs and cities have all the, you know, specific type of product production done in that hub. Um, and then it's a matter of really understanding like what size each factory is in terms of what their production run looks like, what their working capital looks like. Because when you place a PO at a factory, they have to go then, they have to then go buy the raw material to produce that product, right? So they also have working capital issues. Um, and especially as you scale up, that's a pretty big deal in terms of making sure you're transparent about your forecasting, because there are scenarios where 
your factory, you know, if they don't have the working capital to produce raw material and they're floating money for you because you're trying to improve your cash conversion cycle, you know, all of a sudden the factory hits you up and says, Hey, we don't have the money to buy your material or produce your product, right? And that's a really tricky situation to be in. So at a smaller scale, you don't really have to look at that. But as you grow, you know, forecasting is so important and being transparent about that with your factory is vital. Um, and then, you know, I think it's a matter of, um, like I said, third-party inspections, or it is really amazing if you have the opportunity to go over there and visit your factory and build a, you know, in-person relationship with them. It is just an incredible experience and it is eye-opening to see how products are made, right? Like I remember I was in, um, those like plush toys factory before, like what's that? I forget that kid's toy brand that was so popular, had all those plush toys, but like I literally remember like, you know, as a kid, I thought those uh, little toys were just going to be produced in a magical place. And I ended up going to the factory that was producing those products. And it was just not what you'd imagine. You know, it's just them having a machine one by one, just filling it with, um, you know, the, the, the stuffing that they use for those plush products. And it's just so different than, than what you think in terms of how the products are made. And don't get me wrong, you know, they are very high quality and a lot of factories are extremely high quality in China and Asia, but you know, that's another thing you need to keep in mind is what kind of areas of your product might have a defect rate. So keep that in mind if there's like a break point with your design or tech pack um, in terms of where do I think the factory might mess this up. Yeah, I think that that point you made about like the raw materials that are going into your product is really interesting because a factory might be really good at making a, a bunch of products that like look similar to another brand. But if you have a design spec that's like, no, I need to be made to this like quality standard with this type of material, maybe at that level, it's actually a different factory that might be better for you and your your product because the way they're quoting you or the way that they're used to setting up their production, it, it might be different. So like that becomes really important to consider too if yeah. understanding what your design re requirements are, right? Totally. I mean, the other thing that blows my mind too is like when you go get quotes from a factory, they give you a price, right? And it's your price per unit, but you don't actually know what makes up that price per unit, right? You know, obviously you have the material costs, you have the labor costs, you have the facility costs, you have, you know, sometimes you can get as granular as like the electricity costs to produce your product. And especially on the raw material side, like it's really cool to figure out and understand like how does this factory actually get to this price per unit? And it blows my mind that very few founders and e-commerce brands, they just don't ask. They don't ask like, well, how is my product costing $5 or $10 or whatever it may be, right? Like if you look at watches, for example, like there's like, I don't know, four dozen different components that go into a watch and all those little components, a lot of times come from different sub suppliers, like the watch case, the watch hands, the watch strap, you know, all of those little components of a watch come from different suppliers oftentimes, unless it's a, you know, very large watch factory that has their own, you know, case molds and all that stuff. But, you know, for the most part, a lot of those factories are just assembling the watch and they have their own suppliers that actually produce those little individual par parts, which is crazy because like you could literally have factories producing, you know, millions of watch hands, which is just nuts. No, absolutely. And the the next thing that I kind of want to talk about, and this kind of goes back to your experience in building Sourceify and like having all that experience, not only working with factories, but being on the ground floor and seeing them in action. Like how did, let's talk about like Sourceify the business. How did it 
really start? What was like the MVP? Who are your first customers? You know, how many factories were you working with in the early days? Like, let's talk about that whole journey. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, it just started me in my living room and um, kind of our main channel of growth was actually Facebook groups. There was a lot of e-commerce Facebook groups. And so I started sharing content around manufacturing and sourcing products. And, you know, I wasn't being promotional at all, just educational. And, you know, I always would ask the Facebook group, group admin if I could, you know, talk about what I was doing before posting. And, you know, f at the time, this was like 2016, 2017, like there was very few people in e-commerce talking about supply chain. Um, and I think even to this day, like most people want to talk about growing top line, but, you know, you don't realize like to to, you know, boost profitability, like making sure your supply chain is dialed in is so crucial. Um, and, and so, you know, it was just me charging a flat fee, like anywhere from 500 to $2,000 to source a product, just a flat fee. And then in 2018, we got into Y Combinator and um, it was crazy. I mean, I was, uh, to this day, I'm one of the only solo non-technical founders to go through YC and you know, I didn't really know much about software, what software was, but, you know, they saw that we were trying to create and kind of optimize and improve our process through software. And so, you know, we raised a seed round, you know, we hired a development team and we started building supply chain software for teams to have more transparency and visibility into production. And, you know, that was a, a great time for us because, you know, it enabled us to have some SaaS revenue while also taking a commission on uh, production, right? So that's our, our revenue model at SourceFi. We charge a monthly subscription for our software, and then we take a commission on production just depending on the volume, so it's variable. Um, and, you know, we try to align ourselves with our customers as much as we can. Like every new customer that we sign up, we're saving them at least 10% of their unit costs. Um, so, you know, we go in and do a really good job uh, making sure you're working with a factory that can produce, you know, the best product for your business. Um, and in terms of, you know, our growth journey, it was just a matter of uh, expanding with with our customers, right? Like we were early on with Cuts Clothing, you know, um, they ended up outgrowing us actually with payment terms. We couldn't keep up with the terms that they wanted. Um, and, and, you know, payment terms are so crucial for a company to grow. And, and at the time, we didn't have the capabilities to to do so. You know, we were very early on with Jackson, the men's uh, jewelry brand. You know, I think they were Forbes 30 under 30 last year, two years ago, and um, announced they did $70 million in revenue, which was just incredible. So, you know, we still work with Jackson today. It's just incredible to see their growth. Um, and a lot of Amazon brands, you know, there's, uh, I mean, most of our categories, we do like fashion accessories, home goods, uh, sporting goods, and like non-FDA medical supplies. So, but not PPE. Um, we, we we ended up uh, hiring a team member in China that was just extremely strong sourcing like um, like uh, heat pads and you know all sorts of random like non FDA non PPE medical supplies and it's become a really big category for our sourcing team so that's kind of the journey and you know then eight months ago we did a deal with ISBA which is like kind of like a Deloitte for supply chain and so they bought into our business we hired a new CEO and um, you know we've since continued to reinvest in our technology and our team and um, just you know our customers as well. And what did it look like on um, you know because you guys had to build out your network of factories uh, that were that probably just went beyond the couple that you had worked with for your own brand so what was it like on that side of things starting to like 
build relationships and find all like how did you find all these factories where did you find yeah yeah did you start working with them what countries are they in like let's talk about that side of the marketplace totally yeah i mean when i was starting it was just going to every trade show like every canton fair everything that is like canton fair you know there's some shows in vegas like magic sourcing or asd sourcing you know just going to every single trade show you can think of that had suppliers at it and just networking with those suppliers and building a relationship with them. So that was kind of phase one. Phase two was actually hiring and expanding our own sourcing team. So that originated in Guangzhou. Um, I ended up, you know, probably spending like six or eight months of the year in 2018 or 2019 in Guangzhou. And um, it was 2018, yeah. And, and just, you know, really growing our supply chain through team members because all of our team members have been in the sourcing industry for over 10 years. They have strong, long-standing factory relationships. And, you know, that's what's, I think, be, become so core to our expansion strategy. So, like, even as we've expanded to source products in India, Pakistan, uh, Vietnam, you know, all of our sourcing capabilities really stem from our team members and their past experience sourcing products in those categories. So, you know, though I've been to, you know, trade shows in the Philippines and Vietnam and all over Asia, um, I think, you know, having uh, long-standing relationships with suppliers is, is so vital. And that's really why we focus on hiring team members that have a lot of great experience. Um, but at the end of the day too, you know, sourcing and supply chain is demand-driven, right? Like the more product you're producing, the better terms a factory is going to give you and typically the better they're going to, you know, treat you. And so, you know, that's one thing we try to focus and do more of for our customers at Sourcefy now is kind of, you know, consolidate some of our demand to get better pricing and better uh, payment terms for our customers. So you're basically able to kind of like build up a network where you're, if you're sourcing for several brands that are doing, you know, over 10 to 50 mil in revenue or something like that, and they're both in the apparel space, you're able to like funnel that demand into one factory that does massive runs and they're they're pumped because they get a bunch of uh, traffic and then your customers are pumped because they're able to share in terms of like the the pricing, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, kind of economies of scale with factories as we, you know, try to work and consolidate some demand from our customers into, you know, factories that we really have a, a longstanding and deep connection with. So, you know, that's I think the beauty of our business too is, you know, even if you're a smaller, you know, $5 million brand, you know, we still can, you know, most likely get you better pricing and betting better payment terms than your existing factory. That's amazing. Um, and then now I just kind of want to talk about the, like, you know, the landscape in Asia, right? It seems like when you went over there, China was the place to be. Obviously, you've got geopolitical stuff going on between the U.S. and China. Um, you guys are clearly in other countries as well. So let's just talk about um, supply chain strategy from a brand's perspective. You know, what's the what's the latest and greatest uh, from on the ground? Like, how are you guys thinking about this? Yeah. What are some of the like learnings and lessons that you've seen along the way? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I think supply chain goes through phases, right? Like 2018, 2019, everyone was talking about the trade wars and tariff increases and what that means for, you know, SMBs. And, you know, we saw such high demand trying to move outside of China. But at the end of the day, a lot of factories in Vietnam or, you know, India or Pakistan just weren't ready and capable to produce for e-commerce brands either because they didn't have the right certificates, the quality 
um, that they're producing just wasn't, you know, meeting our standards here in America. Um, and now, like you said, there's so many geopolitical issues. Um, and I think too, like the flip of a switch in terms of China's zero COVID policy to now, you know, completely being open, which I think is great. Um, just means that, you know, COVID has spread like really crazy there and it's made for even more factory delays. Um, and so, you know, I think we will see stabilization. I mean, you look at freight rates, right? Like freight, the cost to import a container just skyrocketed during COVID. And now it's, you know, gone back down basically to normal and sometimes even lower than what it was before COVID. So, you know, I think overall China is still the world's manufacturing hub. Is that continuing to shift outside of China? Yes. But, you know, if you look at just their cost of labor, their cost of electricity, like they're investing, you know, more than any other country in like nuclear energy, which, you know, from my research is like the lowest cost of energy. Right. And so it's uh, hard to compete with China because they are so well positioned to be the world's manufacturing hub. And though in America, from a macroeconomic standpoint, we're having a lot of governmental incentives like the CHIPS Act to bring manufacturing back into America. And I think that act is, you know, not only um, strategic from a manufacturing and job standpoint, but also from a kind of uh, security standpoint in terms of not being so reliant on Taiwan or China for for chips. But, you know, even from an e-commerce angle, it's going to be really hard to compete, you know, producing most e-commerce products in America. Um, and even in Mexico, right? A lot of the suppliers in Mexico get the raw material from Asia. Um, so it's always a cha- changing landscape. But, you know, as of today, China is definitely still the world's manufacturing hub. Yeah, it's, it's a great point you make. Even when you think about just like the cost of labor, like obviously the cost of labor is uh, a lot lower in China, but even something like Mexico, you know, you've got political instability, you've got... Um, you, and if they're importing the stuff from Asia anyway, they're still floating that across the ocean, getting it there, and then you know shipping it up to the U.S. So it'll be interesting to see how things continue to shake out. But if you're a, a like, how would you recommend brands think about this, right? Like, is there you know consumer sentiment around manufacturing related to China? Do do you guys source from other areas, like? If you're a brand today, does it matter what segment you're in? Are you trying to build out a strategy where you're like, we'll do volume products in these certain instances in China, and then we'll do other sort of flagship products in different locations? Like, how do you think about building out that strategy as a brand owner? Yeah, I mean, I think number one, the most important part and the most important thing I'm going to say is never be single sourced, right? Like so many brands are single sourced, meaning that they only have one supplier that can produce their product. And even if that's your go-to supplier, you should always know and have a backup supplier that has produced like golden samples for you that you know you can, you know, place a PO with if something happens at a factory. Like there's been countless times where, you know, factories have been shut down because of, you know, uh, fires or because of uh, environmental disasters or because of labor shortages, whatever it may be, you know, we've seen factories uh, shut down and being able to pivot to a factory that you know can produce your product with a similar cost and similar lead time is, is so, so important. And so right off the bat, just never be single sourced. Um, and then when it terms can, comes to exploring other countries, you know, I would say it really depends on the product. 
Um, and it depends on like how sensitive you are to the price of that product, because, you know, though you can find and work with some great factories outside of China, you know, your cost per unit might be a little higher, but your net cost might be similar in terms of if you calculate your freight rate and tariffs and all of that. Um, so I think if you are looking to expand production outside of China, just really calculate it from like your net cost in terms of like, what does it actually cost me to land this product at my warehouse? and pay off, you know, the tariff or duty um, versus, hey, this price per unit is, you know, 10% higher than what it is in China. Yeah, that's, I think that whole point about never being single source is a really good idea. And I could see a lot of first time founders just kind of getting blindsided by having, you know, a ton of their inventory being supplied by one factory. And then, you know, there's a problem at that factory or something happens. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, now what do we do? And then they end up in a situation where, you know, you're kind of back to square one, scrambling for a different factory to meet your demand. So that's not a situation you want to be in. So what you're, you're saying is you'd recommend for brand owners, once you've locked in uh, a supplier, that's step one, and you immediately want to make sure that you've got a uh, a backup plan and a plan B and C just in case you, you need to pull the trigger. Right, exactly. 100%. Sweet. Um, okay, so moving forward from like the sourcing stuff and the brand stuff, um, also was excited to be able to have the convo today just to like chat about uh, some of the other cool things that you've been seeing going on in e-commerce, other projects that you might be working on. So yeah, what, what's the what's the latest in your world? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, always keeping a pulse on what's new, right? So I've been really interested in AI and I think it's just so exciting for, for e-commerce, both from a design standpoint, from a you know, operation standpoint, from a customer service standpoint, I think there's so much that you can do. You know, I've seen a lot of brands just be able to iterate on ads so much faster through AI, right? So whether that be, you know, product photography or uh, graphic design, whatever it may be, like you can iterate so much faster on your ads right now through AI. And if your, you know, growth marketer on your team is not doing that yet, like they are behind. Um, so that's right off the bat like use AI to your advantage from a marketing standpoint. Um, and then from an operations standpoint, you know, I've gotten really interested in the convergence of AI and customer service. Um, you know, I've actually been working on a tool, Caffeinated CX is what we're calling it. And basically we're training AI to autofill responses for your customer service team so they can respond a lot faster and, you know, handle a lot more tickets. Um, so it's on Zendesk and Intercom and eventually Gorgeous as well, but we aren't trying to replace your customer service team. We're trying to empower them so your team can handle 10 times more tickets with the same number of team members. So that's, uh, what I've been up to in the AI world. And, you know, I think really like people are a bit scared of like, oh, is this going to take, you know, my job or whatever it may be. But like, if you're using AI, right, like you're just going to be so much more powerful as a team member, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the big trick in AI, and obviously we've been developing a whole bunch of products and it's been like really fun for me as a founder to kind of go down the rabbit hole, see what um, opportunities there are. Obviously we're doing all our show notes with Cast Magic, which is like an internal tool because like that was a process where we're like, every time we have an episode, we have to manually transcribe it, like create our own content, like go through the transcription and look for quotes and hooks and things where our audience like might find value. And I was like, wait a minute, we can literally take AI, automate this whole thing, upload an MP3 and get all our content out. Um, but I think the key to it and like 
understanding when when there's something to build versus not like i think the people who can figure out how you can use ai in like a repeatable scalable way like that's where the the massive value unlocks is like sure chat gpt is great and if you can like oh i have this one problem and i'm going to go in and write it a prompt and like get my answer today okay that's great but like how can you build systems with ai as opposed to just building like a one-off like oh i did my homework tonight yeah yeah exactly and that's the key right there is like i think how do you use ai to your advantage and like one way i've seen a lot of brands and a lot of companies do that is like they'll just clip up a bunch of videos and a bunch of you know kind of viral clips of their product and just repost it across a bunch of youtube shorts tiktoks you know whatever it may be and you can get like you know hundreds of thousands a million impressions just clipping up your ads and reposting them across a bunch of accounts. And it's just incredible to see the reach that you can get um, by doing that. And so I think that's one strategy that I think, you know, a lot of brands should do and that could be automated through AI. Like even as a next step for cast magic is like, hey, like you can clip it and then you can also post it. And, you know, you can post across multiple accounts too, right? So something that I think can really drive value for brands in terms of growth because in this climate, you know, it is really hard to drive a positive ROAS just on Facebook or Instagram, right? Like every brand that we know is is really looking at blended ROAS. And I think that's why a lot of tools like, you know, Triple Whale or um, High Rose has become really popular because, you know, you have to look at blended ROAS in, in this market, right? Like you can't just look at your Facebook ad manager and say, oh, you know, it's only wh- whatever ROAS it is, right? And so, I think you've got to really look at blended ROAS and, you know, finding ways to um, utilize that and, and make it, you know, grow through AI is, is going to be a huge win. What are some of the tool, like um, you were just talking about, you know, people who are using it to like repurpose for ad stuff. I know we've built some internal stuff that can solve for that. What are there any other good tools that you've seen? Is it on open source? Are there you know, has it been productized? Like, what are you seeing as some of the the best alternatives? Like, for example, like I know Ramon, he couldn't be on with us today, but like with Trend, they're like working with Scale to be able to build out, um, you know, UGC where the creator uploads the UGC, it spits out like hundreds of different variations for like ads and social and whatever. But beyond that, do you, are there any that you've worked with directly at the tool level or is it all like custom? Yeah, I mean, I think um, right now I've seen it all kind of custom, but you know, with Trend, I mean, it's a great platform to create UGC and then how do you, you know, edit and, and upload and optimize that UGC through AI, right? I think that's going to be the key is like, okay, we know this hook is performing better than this hook. So how do we make more hooks like that? And how do we, you know, actually train a model to edit that that hook to perform even better, right? And so, I think that's going to be more of the future. And I think we are going to see like less of those kind of expensive top of funnel long form ads. I think it's going to be a lot more like data-driven testing, right? Like, um, you know, if you look at kind of the uh, top of funnel ad that Dr. Squatch did or that some of these huge brands have done and, and spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on, I think though that is a really important asset. I think for a, you know, growing e-commerce brand, they're going to look to create like a lot more iterations of an ad before they actually invest, you know, 150K into a, into a video ad. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate like A-B test, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you have like a million different variations. You're able to pull them out and really see what sticks. And I think the challenging part is uh, if you're just 
especially when it comes to creative, right? Like there's so many variables in creative that like lead to something going viral. It could be, you know, obviously there you have basics like strong hook and like captivating image and how the angle shot and edited, but like, you know, really being because there's so many variables that all interplay together, a lot of times as human creators, it's hard to figure out what's really going to hit. And sometimes when you're creating content, the content that you think is going to hit doesn't, the content that you're like, eh, I don't think this is going to hit, it blows up. So I think AI, if you, when it's used the right way, it really gives content creators an unfair advantage who are starting to use it now and deploy it in the right way, an opportunity to you know, get more of those home runs, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, and that's the key, right? Is how do you drive more value and how do you drive, you know, greater ROAS through your content? And, you know, that's uh, definitely, I think the future of, of AI and e-commerce. Well, yeah. And, and also what you were talking about with caffeinated, I like it. I think it may, I mean, I, I spent a bunch of time in the CX space building in the space, but like you're, again, it's one of those examples where you're not telling like the agents oh here's chat gbt so every time a customer reaches out you can paste something in and do it like there's no manual process all you're saying is like let's get you to like 90 percent with a response that like probably could work and your job is to be like is this prompt actually like as opposed to the chat bot right because if it's just a chat bot then you know it, you all you're looking at is data you're not actually understanding what the customer is seeing but if you can apply your human capital in at that last line at the like the last mile where all the legwork's done and all they have to be is the filter to be like okay i know who this customer is i know what product is i know what they're reaching out about like this response is good but it needs like a little brush up to like really meet them where they need to be met like that's what you're able to provide and i think that when you look at it from a black or white perspective like chatbot no chatbot this or that like it's tricky because like everyone knows like a lot of times chatbots just you're going to miss on things and like customers are going to be like what the hell i don't want to talk yeah and i think most customers don't even like chatbots you know that's what i think is so crazy about how so many people have approached like ai and customer service is like i don't think it's about creating a bot it's about like how do you empower your customer service team to be 10 times more effective no absolutely um so Nathan, as we wrap up here, um, you know, what else do you have, what else do you have, uh, coming up in, in 2023? We've, you're, you're, you're still involved with Sourceify, um, helping brands and build great products. Um, you're doing, uh, caffeinated CX and applying AI to the CX space and any other projects or what else just really excites you about this year? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, with Sourceify, just continue to help more brands to source products more effectively. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a board member and um, run our podcast, actually e-commerce on tap that we've got to get you on. And, you know, caffeinated CX, you know, we're launching in the Zendesk and Intercom app store. And, you know, for me personally, I think it's just so exciting to see new products and brands brought to life, right? I think, you know, over the past even five years, it's gotten so much easier to launch an e-commerce brand. And I think over the next five years with AI, it's going to be even easier, right? Like you talk about getting your website done, getting your branding done, like that can all now be basically like automated through AI. Um, and so it's just going to be, I think, so interesting to see how that evolves over the next five years to see, like, you you know, we could have an idea for a brand on this podcast and probably, you know, by tomorrow we could have like all of the website and, and digital marketing assets done because, you know, the power of AI and just how, how you're able to, you know, evolve and create so fast in today's world. 
Dude, it's crazy. We were actually like talking about that because when we were building out Cast Magic, we're like, okay, we need to put together like the email flow for the onboarding and activation flow. And then like as a joke in our group chat, we're like, oh, ask Chad GPT to write me an email and activation flow. And then I was like, wait a minute, I can actually do that. (laughs) So I went in and I gave it all the information it needed, what the product is, where the different Mm -hmm. um, sticking points are, what the features are, where it used. I'm like, right, like I prompted it enough to so it knew what to do. It wrote us an amazing flow. And then I'm like, okay, this is great. Now I can, you know, now I have something to work with. I have like the skeleton really done and now I can apply that polish layer. But just to your point to what you're saying, when it comes to launching a brand, whether it's a SaaS product, whether it's an e-com product, all these different things are, you know, like if you know where to apply your skill and leverage and tools using AI and other resources, like you're going to be in a, in a really good spot. So that's what really gets me excited about this year is it's like it really empower. I think AI really empowers the creators and the people who are most creative because they're able, rather than spending and wasting their time on labor inputs that are just kind of like mindless and non-creative, they're able to like get the highest leverage, um, you know, for, for their time. Totally. Yeah. And that's what it's all about, right? Is how do you leverage your time best? And that I think is the key question for any entrepreneur. And I mean, I think too, the one thing I'll say is you're going to be able to iterate and test a lot faster. Right. And if you look at, you know, brands that have really hit it off and hit a home run, they test at such a high velocity. And I think that's, you know, the key for any founder is how do you, you know, test faster and iterate faster than, than anyone else. Sweet. Well, Nathan, thanks again for joining us. Can't wait to keep up with you guys, uh, Sourceify and Caffeinated. And for any of our listeners, where can they connect with you and and the companies? Yeah, just uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm Nathan Resnick. And uh, yeah, happy to answer any questions and appreciate you having me on. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.